When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well done and thank you for uncovering Whitehall Sources, your new insider podcast on politics brought to you in association with The Resident. Hotels with excellent rooms in exceptional locations and where thoughtful teams deliver heartfelt hospitality. A bit like number 10. But with The Resident, evening drinks are from Justerinian Brooks. They don't get wheeled up a road to you in a suitcase. Thanks to The Resident, your favourite podcast starts now. Together, we can achieve incredible things. We will create a future worthy of the sacrifices so many have made and fill tomorrow and every day thereafter with hope. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald with Kirsty Buchanan, former advisor to Liz Truss and to Theresa May as well. Also here, Oscar Redrop, former advisor to Boris Johnson when he was Prime Minister. Welcome to a special episode where we're out of kilter all over again because of the drama of the moment. This week we will take you behind the door of number 10 Downing Street where Rishi Sunak has walked through for the first time as Prime Minister. On today's show then, a Prime Minister who's been welcomed well by the world. Sunuk is now the Prime Minister. Yeah, thanks for that, Mr President. Uh, also on today's show, this becomes history. I am a fighter and not a quitter. Turns out that wasn't strictly the case, was it? Uh, that was Prime Minister Truss, of course, who has departed. And why not? I mean, since we're here, we might as well just play this again. Prime Minister is not uh, under a desk as the Honourable Rishi Sunak will be getting behind his desk even as we speak to you, getting a grip on what is going on. On today's episode, then, we will assess the state of the Conservative Party. We'll hear about Kirsty and Oscar's personal encounters with Rishi Sunak when they were working in Downing Street. What is he like? What's it like to be around him? Is he intelligent? Is he up to the job? We'll ask them with their first 
first-hand experience. Also for their advice on the first day of school for lots of the advisors who are joining him in number 10. And in a special bonus episode that will drop into your feeds after this one, we'll stop it and roll it for Rishi Sunak's first speech as Prime Minister on Downing Street. You can email, of course, the email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Welcome to a brand new episode. First of all, uh, Oscar, you've just hot-footed it from Good Morning Britain, which was once a popular morning television programme. I, I, I don't know if it's... <laughs> is it still... Is it, you'll, be, you'll be helping the racings, I'm sure. Are you implying that because they've asked me to start going on it, that it's no, no longer popular? No, absolutely not. That barrel can just hear it being <laughs> duly Weren't scraped. you on with Alan Partridge? Richard oh, sorry, Meadley, Richard, sorry, I'll have you know. Stick. But no, there, there are there are a few similarities. I mean, he, he was actually really, he was really, really nice. He, he was quite viciously supportive of Rishi, which I was slightly support, uh, surprised at because, you know, Richard, when I've watched the show, uh, has been, you know, firmly behind Boris. And as we know, sometimes the two don't really tend to meet. Um, what did we talk about? We talked about robotic Rishi, whether his first speech, I know we're going to talk about the one he did today, his first speech was a little bit too stiff, a little bit too robotic, no cut through, very ill-prepared. And I did say, I said, well, let's just give him, you know, let's just wait for today to reserve judgment. And I think, as we'll see, it, it was slightly better mm, today. That's good. I was, um, I was on Downing Street yesterday on Monday, which actually, if I'm honest, turned out to be a bit of a, I think, a less dramatic day than maybe was anticipated. I think that's fair to say because, well, first of all, not much was happening on Downing Street because everything got moved to today, Tuesday, for the sort of transition of power, as it were. But then also, I just felt this, like, sense of calmness after Rishi Sunak had been announced, which sort of fell on everyone. I don't When you were following it all, Kirsty, did you feel that yesterday that suddenly everything just calmed? The whole thing was like a roller coaster, though, over the weekend, wasn't it? So <clears throat> on the Saturday morning, um, uh, I spoke to a couple of people at Team Rishi and they were kind of increasingly confident that they were getting the right kind of numbers um, and that, that Boris was perhaps struggling more than, you know, Team Boris might have thought. Um, and that kind of picked up during the course of the day and then... Somebody uh, who presumably thought it was helpful to Team Boris, but actually turned out to be the, the the bang opposite of helpful, said, "Oh, we've got you know we've got a hundred names." At a point when they only had fifty declared, at which point, you know, most of Britain went liar liar pants on fire. <laughs> as, you know, <laughs> sh- sh- if you've got them, show them as it were. Um, and actually, I think that I presume that was done to try and build momentum into the campaign. But actually, it really did the bang opposite and made it feel like it was really struggling. Um, and then going into sort of Sunday morning, there was kind of more of a sense actually that, you know, uh, the, 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 the Penny's campaign was really beginning to, to pick up as Boris folded because, I, you know, as you'll recall, you know, they went to meet each other, Boris and Rishi, and I presume Boris said, well, you know, fold in behind me, chap, and I can offer you X, Y, and Z, and, and Rishi went, no, 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 it doesn't work that way anymore, <laughs> with respect. Um, so uh, that came to naught, and then all of a sudden, kind of, you know, on the outside track, if you like, Penny became a, a, a real kind of threat, and, you know, didn't pull out to the last minute. So the whole thing was quite a roller, so it was quite a relief just 
from the fact that you know you weren't going to have to go through you know an indicative vote you weren't going to have to go to the membership with all the kind of perils that that entails and that you know they had done the right thing and rode in behind the person that was clearly the you know the number one choice for the parliamentary party and now uh, as I think Rishi said to, to to the party on the day, you know, now the choice for the party is look, unite or die. Mm. You know, it is of course incumbent on the new prime minister to reach out across the teams and have a reshuffle that you know reflects the talents of of the entire Conservative Party. But it's also incumbent on everybody within the Conservative Party now to you know to kind of row in behind the prime minister. Otherwise, yeah. annihilation waits them at the at the ballot. You know, it's that simple now. No, I, that's spot on. And actually, I think Unite or Die, even though it didn't come from Rishi's mouth uh, specifically, but came from his team, I think was the a, an example of actually good comms that we haven't had in the last, in, you know, however, you know, weeks while, while Liz has been in charge. You know, that, that's a really, really clear uh, and catchy kind of cut through memorable line that's come straight from his team that would have absolutely, I mean, it was on all the front pages, all those MPs, clear as day, aware of the risk. I, I thought that was a really straight out the door, good example of, of, of a good comms line to start with from Rishi. On Boris, obviously I have a personal... Here we go. Uh, I forgot to make a jingle. <laughs> personal, yeah, investment on this. And I, I it, it was, I felt slightly, um, it's a hard thing to articulate. I felt, quite nervous about the whole thing when I heard, I mean, obviously I was initially really excited when I heard that there's potential return for him, but in the back of my mind, I knew deep down that it perhaps had just come too soon. And some of it did sit a little awkwardly with me, just in the sense that he did achieve things that I think will be remembered fondly and will be remembered well, not just by the public, uh, or portions of the public, uh, but by the party. And I just felt like, do you really want to tear this up by overreaching here? As it turns out, I, I think he did get the numbers. I, he did get he did get the hundred to get on the ballot, but but that wasn't that wasn't enough because the pain you know, of let's say he got 103, I think 102 uh, was was the number the 1922 convenient. committee came back with. <laughs> Very convenient. But it's not enough. Cynical, I mean, yes, enough. I mean, but, in, you know, enough to get on the ballot, but the actual politics involved, mm. not enough. And, mm. I, and weirdly, I felt a bit of pride towards Boris that he perhaps realised that because he, you forget when he resigned... He, there was, and I think I, okay, I could understand a real sense of injustice that he delivered that huge majority and that his own MPs, you know, forced him out. And in his head, it was like, the people vote me in, the people, you know, if they decide, will vote me out. And I saw a journey there of acceptance where he went, it would just be too much for the party to deal with. It'd be too toxic. Okay, can I... So I saw that. Go on, Kirsty. Can I just come back with a with a reality check here? You know, this was, <laughs> you know, this was a prime minister who had tanked his party in the polls, um, who had the lowest popularity ratings of a prime minister ever before Liz Truss came along and said, "Look, hold my beer." Uh, this was a this was a prime minister who, because of his own behaviour, not because of the behaviour of others, had sixty ministers 
and PPS is resigning and saying he was not fit to govern, which is why he had to resign in the end, because he quite literally couldn't form a government to keep the show on the road, who then proceeded to learn his lessons by going on three holidays, the last of which he rushed back to try and have another tilt at the windmill, if you like, only for some it's a great of... tan, though, Kirsty. It was a good tan. <laughs> with, a, with, a, with a curious kind of, uh, you know, tan and a very odd picture of him rallying the troops. But, you know, some of his own, like, most, you know, ardent supporters, uh, more ardent even than you, Oscar, uh, were saying, look, you know, Charles Moore, the intervention of Charles Moore was a kind of a sit, yeah. sit this one out boy. Um, look, so the idea that he just sort of had a, an epiphany and rolled in behind Rishi because it was the right thing to do. In a few weeks' time, this guy's going to get hauled before the Privileges Committee uh, at the Commons. If what the briefings that are coming out of that are to be believed, you know, it's going to get very, very rough for the, Prime Minister, for the former Prime Minister very, very quickly. Now, there is no world where you can be the Prime Minister with a country in the political and economic state that it's in at the moment and say, excuse me, I would be trying to deal with your cost of living crisis, but I've just got to go and yeah. answer a bunch of questions in front of the Privileges Committee about my own behaviour during Partygate. It's just not tenable. I No, no, I, I, I think that's I think right, on the hundred as well, think, yeah. we, we had an interesting discussion on, uh, well, just in our newsroom, actually, to take you behind the scenes, at Times Radio, but about the because there was a lot of concern about how the one hundred figure was reported. Was it was it careless reporting, or or in some way um, unhelpful, or just being kind of a mouthpiece? All of the usual allegations. When at the weekend, Boris Johnson's campaign suggested they had a hundred, and but the names were not forthcoming. Um, and we had a really interesting conversation about well, actually, was it right to report what is a kind of rumor, um, a bit of gossip? you know, from perhaps a one source or whatever within the Boris Johnson campaign before somebody made the very good point, well, well that's entirely how this works. That's how jour political journalism particularly operates. And it's an age-old discussion in some ways. Um, and people like Laura Kunzberg have often been at the receiving end of quite unfair criticism, actually, around these sorts of things. But those sorts of contacts that are established within a campaign and people who are close to a prime minister or former prime minister, and then depending on them for the kind of inside track... That is actually just how it works. So those allegations of careless or reckless reporting struck me over the weekend. And then, well, as Oscar, as you were saying, it was kind of highlighted then on Monday by um, uh, by the campaign that actually they, they may have got across the finish line, but, you know, magnanimously withdrew anyway. But I do just think that that was kind of part and parcel. Do you feel like it did anything to the campaign to report that number? And I mean the, the broader campaign in general, the contest in general, Oscar. Well, I think Kirsty in some ways is actually kind of spot on. I think a lot of people saw it at the time as actually the sign of a flagging campaign, mm -hmm. not exactly how it was, exactly the opposite to what, to what that briefing would have intended. It probably came across a little insecure. You know, if you've got the numbers, guys, just crack on. Like, everything's good, isn't it? Why, why, why do you feel the need to kind of drum up this... Uh, uh, at the time, uh, support amongst MPs that were, were not being named. It just seemed odd. And if anything, that played into the narrative that people in private like Boris, but because of the toxicity around him, were not willing to put their name to it. And I, so in, in that sense, I think it was perhaps counterproductive. What I would say, however, in terms of the actual reporting of it is, you know... Would, what do you expect? You know, even, and I know Chris Mason at the BBC because he's at the BBC got a lot of flack. But, but what do you expect him to do? You know, this is a, this is a, this is an absolutely kind of minute to minute 
a weekend-long campaign to choose our next Prime Minister. If you're hearing from one of the front-runners that they've got the numbers from that source, then you, you're going to report that. And actually, if you look at the language, it was, you know, we are yeah, hearing exactly. from... You know, so make of that what you will. They weren't saying, yeah, I've, I, I can absolutely independently source from the BBC. Boris has hit the... It was all we're hearing, mm-hmm. campaign mm-hmm. sources... So I think the heat that journalists, and don't get me wrong, it was part of my job to give journalists a hard time. <laughs> but but that, that that's not right. You know, the, the, any stick and flack that journalists are getting for that, I, I don't think is right at all. I mean, there's, there's two sort of pompous democracy points to make here, isn't there? One, you know, how has, you know, how have we got into a situation where the former prime minister has bought the office and the integrity of the, you know, of the, of the post prime minister to such a low point that when his team say, we've got a hundred names, the entire world says, okay, we don't believe you, show us the money, if you like, because your reputation has become such that you're not prepared to have that taken on face value. And it was interesting when, like a day later, Penny Morden's team were briefing that they were there or thereabouts, you didn't have that kind of like, you know, look, show us, (laughs) we don't believe you. Uh, so, so there is that, and that we'll come on to talk later about um, Rishi's uh, in front of Number Ten speech and the uh, the importance that he puts on restoring integrity and trust in the office, which has been so denuded by Boris Johnson's time in office. So, some of it was about that, but also there is a very dangerous kind of tendency, sort of bubbling under the surface in modern public discourse, that holds journalists responsible for. Uh, for things that happen in politics that people don't agree with or dislike, you know, journalists are, are, you know, a vital part of the liberal democracy. They cannot operate in a system where they are subjected to the levels of abuse and sometimes threats that they get on an almost daily basis. When we've got yeah. a situation, yeah. Laura Kunzberg, the former political editor, it got so bad with sort of political extremism under Corbyn, that she had to go to conference with, you know, public protection Bodyguards. officers around mm-hmm. her. That is an outrageous state for, for politics to get to. So one of the many things I don't like about cakeism in politics, if you like, or populism in politics, is apart from the fact that it denudes the office, it that sort of cancer like grows outwards and infects things around it. So it means that... You know, journalists who are trying to do, uh, you know, a good job of holding politicians to account and letting people know what it is that they need to know about what's going on, you know, in Whitehall and Westminster, are subjected to a torrent of abuse, an absolute torrent of it. And, you know, we need to get back to, you know, a number 10 where, where trust and integrity is taken at face value so that we can bring down the temperature on politics in this country and protect... journalists who are just trying to do their job and get people the information they need. One thing on that, though, in terms of uh, political journalism from the week that was, the BBC reporter who's been taken off air um, for her very gleeful uh, and, you know, excited state about Boris pulling out of the leadership race, I think was the correct decision. I think if you work at the BBC, you... You you cannot you you, you cannot over, overstep. Yeah, like that. A, I, I thought that was I thought that was wrong. No, a hundred percent. I mean, there's an outbreak of consensus here, Oscar. You know, the BBC is in a very particular position because of its license fee 
funding. Exactly. It has a duty to be impartial, regardless of what you think about Boris Johnson. That was uh, a jaw-dropping uh, clip, uh, entirely yeah. uh, incorrect, and it was absolutely right. I'm afraid that she uh, was removed. Uh, and, you know, that is the importance of Tim Davies' role as the Director General of the BBC. He came in promising to make impartiality his number one priority at the BBC because this institution too is having a crisis of confidence with its viewers uh, and you know impartiality of coverage uh, has to be uh, has to be number one uh, in terms of restoring that trust and you know watching Chris Mason you know I have to say over the last oh, he's few days has been an utter joy Top an utter game. joy uh, you, know, you would you would never know what Chris Mason thinks about, you know, politicians or or how he might vote. You will never know that, yeah. but that in no way stops him being, Brilliant. you know, just a class act of a journalist. And hats off to him; he's been fantastic over the last. Uh, well, I mean, he's just fantastic. Full stop. Totally. But what do you think, but- Callum? Do you like Boris or not? <laughs> Come on. Not you don't have to be impartial, Callum. Come no, on. I'm not strictly impartial. I do always <laughs> think it's it's healthier to be impartial, though, because for this exact reason, because then people can't come for you. And actually, you should just... My, my sort of bottom line is to give everyone... And I don't mean this in a nasty way, but is to give politicians equally as hard a time because they all deserve to be held to account. And I think this is something I was um, I wrote about last week. Um Throughout the campaign, we were kind of, we were interviewing the previous campaign, I should say, the summer campaign to be next Conservative leader. We were interviewing um, uh, supporters of either side um, basically every day. And a lot of the time we were asking for just simply more detail on plans and it wasn't forthcoming. And actually, I think what happens in that circumstance is you end up with Liz Truss, who, who didn't provide detail uh, throughout the campaign, then ends up in office did she have the detail? Well, if she did, it certainly collapsed all around her. And I think that actually that was a good demonstration of politicians should enjoy scrutiny and should appreciate the demand for information and detail because actually it holds them to a better standard in terms of policymaking. Because it's for analysts, journalists, whatever, to actually pick up on the detail that is lacking and say, hang on, this isn't this doesn't make sense. And if they weren't so resistant to that, actually, when they get to a place of governing, uh, they would perhaps be better placed to implement a whole strategy and a whole policy. Um, so that was one thing I was considering last week in just the aftermath of Liz Truss's downfall. Um, and on Chris Mason, who I do know a bit, um, having worked with him at the BBC, he is amazing. He is the loveliest man. He is brilliant at his job. Yeah. He is on the radio at 7 o'clock in the morning and on the telly at 11 o'clock at night and does a podcast here, there and everywhere. I don't know how he does it, but he is brilliant. And so I will never hear a bad word said about Chris Mason ever. So well done us for being unanimous. Just very quickly on Chris, I'll never forget this. When um, Boris was facing the vote of no confidence and, you know, my whole existence for those kind of 48 hours was trying to fill the airwaves with as many, you know, pro-Boris backers as possible. And uh, almost to save time, but also, you know, to to add a bit of an extra dimension and further effect, we put uh, secretaries of state doing down-the-line interviews with the BBC together. So we'd have... We'd have kind of, you know, Suella Braverman with Brandon Lewis doing a joint interview. And I remember afterwards, Chris... You know, Chris came out to do that one in particular, and he came out and he kind of put his arm on my shoulder, 
and he said, I just want you to know, one, that was a really nice new idea, and two, you know, I hope, I hope you're doing okay. You know, this is... And he gave them a really difficult, tough interview, but just having that kind of mm. human touch there, I thought, classy, classy guy. I'm going to get us all I Heart Chris Mason T-shirts for <laughs> yes, Christmas. please. <laughs> we should do a spe- we'll try and do a special episode with Chris Mason one day. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? I'd love that. We'll get Chris Mason on the pod. Uh, right, I didn't expect our intro chat to be quite so dominated by Boris Johnson, but then isn't that the story of all of our lives, is that he's always there, lurking, happy to have the attention... You know, surfing that, <laughs> surfing that wave of attention, isn't that right, Oscar? Just loves it. The squatting toad. <laughs> the squatting toad, indeed. Right, still to come, we are going to look at the Conservative Party that Rishi Sunak is now leading. What mess is he inheriting? Have Conservative MPs been, well, quite simply behaving badly over the last few days and during this leadership contest? And what exactly does he need to do? Plus, we have got that insider insight that you are here for. Kirsty and Oscar will tell us about the times they have met and worked with actual Rishi Sunak, the new Prime Minister. You will not get that anywhere else. Stay where you are. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident. Hotels that are your home away from home in London and Liverpool. Resident hotels provide the perfect base to explore the city. Maybe you stayed in a resident in Liverpool for the Labour Party conference just a few weeks ago, or you may be looking for a base from which to explore London. You might even be on a political pilgrimage to Whitehall and Downing Street, inspired by this very podcast. Whitehall Sources brings you the inside info on politics. The Resident brings you insider info on your chosen destination. Go to residenthotels.com to become a member and secure exclusive rates, and the Resident teams will support you throughout your stay. This is Whitehall Sources, your insider's guide to current political events, hearing from those who have lived it and breathed it inside number 10. Gosh, we spent far too much time talking about Boris Johnson, but perhaps that brings us actually quite neatly on to our next topic for today. The Conservative Party that the new Prime Minister, the new Conservative leader, Rishi Sunak, is inheriting because there are some big characters in there, there are some big problems uh, that he faces... Um, as we record this at lunchtime on Tuesday the 25th of October, we're working our way towards cabinet reshuffle. It looks like Jacob Rees-Mogg has already quit. Actually, he's resigned from, from the cabinet. He is out. Uh, and so big changes. Brandon Lewis Brandon well. Lewis, is that right? Oh, yes, Brandon Lewis. I've just seen a letter at a good shout. An honour to have been one of the longest serving cabinet ministers. The new PM will have my support from the back benches. So, movement's afoot, but it, it lets us talk about, I suppose, the Conservative Party, the state it's in, the characters that are in there, and, and crucially, how to deal with them. Um, in your experience, you've been, up, you've been up with some of these characters that are still floating around. Kirsty, do you want to go first on this? Because I think it's an interesting... It, as we've been reflecting on the podcast series so far, it is an interesting time to become Conservative leader. Uh, it is indeed. I mean, look, it's a, you know, in many ways, it's a, a dreadful time to become conservative leader. I mean, the intray that Rishi Sunak has is the intray of nightmares. 
Um, it's worse you know, than Liz Truss's entry because she made it worse. <laughs> she added a couple of extra layers <laughs> to the entry. So, I mean, just to have a kind of quick trot through it, you've got, you know, a cost of living crisis. You have an ongoing war in the Ukraine, which whilst we, you know, continue to pray for our, you know, clement weather to, to, to hold out, might very well lead to the prospect of you know intermittent blackouts this winter if we're not if we're not careful. We've got you know soaring food prices. We noticed today the ONS put some statistics out about the you know the increasing cost of people's food. Uh, thanks to the uh, aftershock of trussonomics, millions of people whose fixed term mortgages come to an end next year will be looking at higher interest rates on their mortgage repayments. Uh, we've got 6.5 million backlog in the NHS, which uh, might be compounded by 300,000 nurses going potentially on strike over pay. We've got rail sector workers on strike, postal sector workers on strike, and you know possibly you know more public sector workers going out on strike. So a winter, although it's very sunny outside my house right now. And we should, like I say, continue to pray for that. Uh, you know, a winter of, of real problems. And one of the things that uh, Rishi has, has managed already to do is to, to level with the public and say, look, you know, we are going to face some very, very difficult months ahead. We are going to need to accept that some very difficult decisions need to be taken and that we cannot continue... Uh, with the unsustainable levels of debt that we have right now. So we will see when that budget comes around, probably on Monday, uh, almost certainly going to be delivered by the current Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, uh, that there's going to be some real tough choices there. You know, the, the, like I said, the days where you can, you know, promise, you know, tax cuts and that we can get through this without any pain are, are, are over I think and we all need to face up to the fact that there's, it's just going to be really difficult apart from late you know 1970s uh, when Thatcher took office uh, who is by the way you know the mentor of um, you know the political hero of Rishi Sunak I cannot think of a single time where a prime minister has come in with a worse uh, inheritance than that that Sunak's got and that's before you even start from the kind of divided party mm. uh, but I'll stop in a minute but just one other point to make here you know which is precisely why uh, when you know Liz Trust during the leadership contest in the summer was 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 expounding the virtues of Reaganomics and let's cut taxes and that will lead to growth and that will you know cut down inflation Rishi Sunak argued that the first thing you must do to stop a recession, and we are heading into a recession, there's no doubt about that, to make that as short and as shallow as possible, you need to squeeze out inflation. You must do that before you get growth, which will give you the tax cuts. That's why that slightly dry debate that we had over the leadership contest about the sequential nature of how you get to growth and tax cuts really matters to people. And I think if the one thing that trussonomics has left people is a real understanding that macroeconomics is important because it absolutely impacts on every single person's life. And that's why you need competent, stable, compassionate government to get to grips with the markets, 
to bring down those guilt yields, to stabilise the pound because it impacts on everyone in terms of their mortgages, in terms of, of their jobs, in terms of the interest that businesses have to pay on loans. This stuff really matters. It is the number one priority for this government is to get to grips and stabilise the economy. But that means a lot of tough choices ahead. In terms of the Conservative Party itself, unity is a, a big thing. And these policies have caused divisions, but there have been divisions there actually for some time. I don't know if you think back to, gosh, a few months ago, Oscar, where those those divisions were probably apparent even in the Boris Johnson era and have, and have simply deteriorated and got worse. Well, I think Boris uh, was... And I think this is exactly how it's turned out. I think Boris was quite good at just about keeping the, you know, the, the submarine, if you like, of, you know, party discipline and all those factions within the party, uh, just about keeping it in place. Um, people would argue that his own distractions and, the, you know, the controversies around Boris was actually a distraction from maybe the stuff deeper down going on in the party in terms of real policy and, and, and how we move forward. I also think, just as a general rule of thumb, the Conservative Party in government, to me, often feels on a sure footing when it's having to be reactive. It's much better actually de delivering tough messages about you know financial discipline, um, it, we're already hearing kind of austerity kind of language. And I sometimes think that's actually where the Conservative Party knows what it is more. I sometimes think with that, you know, very proactive um, campaign around Brexit and all those new voters that Boris attracted and that, that 2019 government got on, got on board, I sometimes think the party didn't really know what to do with it that opportunity in a way. And so I think the language that we'll start to see now, and actually just the absolute economic reality, I think the Conservatives, they go back to their crib sheet. They go back to that, you know, 2010, you know, kind of Cameronite crib sheet. And I think that will serve them well. And I think in Rishi and, and Hunt, they have two leading lights there that, that can wear those hats really well. I mean, the first dilemma for Rishi, though, when you really think about it, is the world, the UK, uh, politicos, his MPs are all demanding kind of competence and stability. But they also want unity. And there's a friction there for me because putting someone in cabinet who appeases that particular faction, so you're, you know, you're tickling the unity factor there, isn't necessarily the same as picking someone who's best for the job. So informing that cabinet moving forward, that's a really, really difficult task for Rishi, I think. That's an interesting one to in pick up of... on because of the, just to jump in, because the, the, the characters no, that are in the mix here and that we have seen in the last few days, Nadine Doris was presenting Piers Morgan's television show last night, just as an example of kind of how conservative figures are, I don't know, behaving badly doing what they want i'm not sure it just feels like in the last few weeks it's it's, it's like you've squeezed a tube of toothpaste and conservative mps have gone everywhere <laughs> just kind of been bit all over the no, place absolutely. and brandon lewis is a really good example of that and kirsty will have her experiences with him my experiences with him were absolute team player um competent really good media performer when the absolute proverbial had hit the mega fan, you could send Brandon out and he would calm things down. So that's a loss. I also think, you know, when you look at Liz's departing speech today, 
I mean, that that really didn't sound like someone who's willing to go quietly, which I thought really surprising under the circumstances. I thought, you know, contrition, humility, you know, head down and, you know, go, you know, go, go quietly. But that, that is not where she's at at yeah. all. She was stoking, you know, in terms of the defence spending, you know, raising questions around Rishi's commitment to that and the problems that could cause potentially with Ben Wallace. So there are, I mean, I mean, Kirsty absolutely nailed the economic kind of intray uh, that Rishi's facing. But there is a political one that, that, that's coming for him. And there are a lot of MPs um, who are not sold on Rishi, I feel. Mm. I feel that he's a, the, the antidote to Boris Johnson in many ways. But I think there are a lot of MPs who are waiting to see it's all very well and good looking like a good prime minister when you're not. It's very different when you get in that seat, as Liz found out. Kirsty? There's 23 seats around the cabinet table. Uh, Rishi Sunak has to create a reshuffle, or a rish-shuffle, as it's now been called, <laughs> uh, that balances party <laughs> unity with rewarding those that have stood loyally by him. Um, but also the diversity issue matters as well. So you need a good kind of uh, balance of a, of a cabinet that represents the, the country that it serves. So there are lots of competing interests there and you are going to get people who will be disappointed. Some of those will be loyal people that will be disappointed. But look, unity, party unity, is a is a is a matter of of, of collective endeavour now, right? We get back to our uni unite or die point. So, yes, it is beholden on the prime minister to reach out to the other camps to create a cabinet of all the talents and to have that kind of big tent representation that the Conservatives used to be known for, but before they became known for fighting like ferrets in a sack. Um, so yes, some of this is, is, is on the Prime Minister, but the rest of it is on the entire parliamentary party, right? You know, you've, you've had your fighting and your psychodrama and, you know, your soap opera for years now of factual infighting. It has almost destroyed the Conservative Party. It has taken it to the brink of electoral annihilation. Now, you've got a choice. You know, you can either grow up uh, if you don't like what's going on and who's in charge, you can shut up. Uh, or frankly, you should get out, uh, I think is the point. I think Nadine Doris's tweets uh, are an absolute disgrace. Um, you know, I appreciate that she's got loyalty to Boris Johnson, but he is not the Prime Minister and it is her responsibility, as it is of every single other MP, to row in behind, uh, otherwise you are damaging the country and you are damaging the party that you profess to love. And if you contrast that, I know Brandon Lewis very well. You know, I know that he will be loyal and will support the Prime Minister and work as hard as anybody to uh, get the Conservatives yeah. re-elected. That is what, you know, being a good, responsible, grown-up politician should be. Um, and Nadine, yeah. I just, you know, OK, you know, Big dog didn't, you know, didn't get there. You know, get over it and be quiet now, please, because it's it's really destabilising. The country's had enough of it. We just need you to be quiet. Yeah, that that's the key point. Kirsty like nailed it. You know, the country have had enough, and I I I don't think the the party 
up until recently, maybe too late potentially, quite understood the visceral anger that is out there that during this moment in time, this political infighting is going on. And so, you know, Rishi and, you know, his whipping operation would do well if the MPs, caseworker inboxes are not already uh, reminding those backbenchers to absolutely keep that in the forefront of people's minds. Just a little note on Rishi that I've seen kind of lazy tropes in the media, you know, and as much as I would love Boris to have come back and I'm a Boris guy, I guess... Some of his supporters, of black <laughs> as if there was any doubt. <laughs> Can you not tell? But, but a lazy trope that I've seen even some of them latching onto in terms of, oh well, the red wall's gone now. You know, all those red ball MPs—they're all going to lose their seats. Not true. Rishi's actually very popular in those communities. You forget he's an MP up there. And secondly, you know, you know Ben Houchen huge Rishi fan. He spends so much time campaigning up there. You know, Rishi's done, Rishi's done a lot in terms of, you know, uh, the uh, high streets uh, town deal in those communities. Rishi's popular up there. So again, like when I'm watching that kind of caucus of the party kind of, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm watching other MPs who are not from that part of the world trying to cause trouble for those MPs. They're all turning around going, no, come up here. That is not the reality. So they just need to just act as Kirsty. Kirsty should be the new chief whip. Yeah. Kirsty. <laughs> no, I'd sort oh, yeah, them out. I, I suspect Mel Stride might have that job, but um, uh, yeah. But look, I mean, th- th- there's a simple there's a simple point here, isn't it? You know, every MP now imperils the relationship of every other colleague now if they don't accept and move on. And I look for me personally. You know, it's always been... I don't even understand why we got into the situation that we're in the last sort of two or three months has been like some weird fever dream, knowing that, you know, the, the, the membership were going to make the wrong choice and being incapable, like the rest of the country, to, to stop it from happening. Well, you know, the other interesting thing to note about uh, uh, Rishi Sunak's speech, which, again, I think we'll, we'll talk more about later, but, you know, he stressed the point about you know, we are a parliamentary democracy, right? You do not elect on a sort of presidential system. You elect a government on a manifesto to deliver on that manifesto. And the first thing he's done in front of the steps of number 10 is pledge to deliver on that manifesto. So Boris Johnson's quite right commitment, you know, to levelling up regions that are falling way behind London and the South East is very much back on the agenda you know, raising growth, raising productivity, raising standards of life, better NHS, safer, safer streets, you know, better schools, all the things that were promised in the 2019 manifesto that Red Wall voters backed. They didn't just back Boris, they backed the manifesto because he heard them and represented them and their needs after being, you know, dismissed and kind of ignored and taken for granted by Labour for too long. So that is very much back on the agenda. Boris Johnson was 100% right in his levelling up agenda, 100% right to, to reach out and say, this is, you know, this is what we need to do uh, to unite the country as much as anything else. And it's great to see that that is back on the agenda. You can't, you can't, you know, one of the problems that Liz Truss had was 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 not only that Trussonomics was, you know, frankly bonkers, but she but she tore up the 2019 manifesto on which the Conservative Party was elected. 
Yeah. I think as well to add to that, and it's something I was considering yesterday when I was speaking to uh, just normal people, civilians um, around Westminster who were there to as tourists or whatever, just to see what was going on. And there was this couple, this married couple that I spoke to who run a business together. And they were quite considered in what they were saying. And I, I mean that in terms of they were hesitant. They were almost subdued, but they were optimistic, I think. And one thing that struck me was when they said, Rishi gave us a lot of support during the pandemic and we're going to need a lot of support now. And that struck me because in a way like no other politician other than Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, who was made chancellor right at the start of the pandemic, immediately became so familiar to so many people because he was on TV and on the radio. And more than that, he was putting money in people's pockets and he was keeping them safe by getting them out of work and still being and still getting them paid. And so people felt this connection to Rishi Sunak, though that couple was the, a great example of that. They were stood right outside Westminster on College Green where all the media kind of gathered. They were just sort of sitting there contemplating. And, and that has stayed with me in terms of Liz Truss didn't have that reputation with the public before. Rishi Sunak actually managed a crisis largely managed managed it well i think if you ask people i think i think people say that you know you did really well and there's a two-step political sorry Kevin. there's a two-step political point to that that again rishi and his team will do well to remind his own mps of one labor you've already seen it now are scrabbling around trying to find decent attack lines you know apart from the oh he's really rich and he wears you know prada loafers or whatever you know how could he ever understand you know, normal working people when he's, you know, a multi-millionaire and all this kind of stuff. That is rubbish. Doesn't hold true at all for exactly the reason that you just identified. Because of Rishi's steadfastness during the pandemic, a lot of people in their heart of hearts, even if they're not conservatives, will know, you know, when they look in the mirror, you know what, that guy actually coughed up 80% of my wages and kept us going, you know, during those really difficult times. So that's the first thing that um, is a very powerful political angle to Rishi Sunak. And the other problem Labour are going to have, and this is another thing that if you're his team, you remind your MPs every waking minute of the day, you remind your Tory MPs, I mean, from Rishi's perspective, is the Labour Party have a lot of a lot of their own problems amongst their MPs in terms of the direction Starmer's taking them. You know, the Sam Tarry stuff. There are real divisions in the Labour Party that have obviously had zero airtime because of what's been going on with the Tories. So that's another political motivation for Rishi to get everyone in line and say, guys, if we actually get together, really famously over the last few years, it's been the Labour Party who've been eating themselves. If we tighten up, those, you know, those fragilities in the Labour Party are just under the surface to tease out. That actually brings me on something I'm really fascinated to hear from you both this week, which is about Rishi Sunak himself. Um, I know you've both met him, you've both, you know, encountered him, worked with him, known him, whatever. And I just feel like this is the insight we get from you that we don't get from other people because it was, you know, as I spoke to those members of the public and they felt that level of familiarity. Actually, I realised I was about to speak to two people in you who have both met him and encountered him. Kirsty, first, what what sticks with you about Rishi Sunak? Okay, so uh, I worked with him briefly when I was uh, a senior civil servant. I have been many things <laughs> over my uh, over the course of my career. And I was a senior civil servant at the Ministry of uh, 
I can't, it's had so many acronyms, I'm struggling for the right one now, sorry. It's Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. Um, and uh, it seems incredible, but you know, just to put this in perspective, Rishi Sunak has only been an MP for seven years, and when I you know, worked with him, he was a junior minister. Um, and just to give you a sort of insight into the guy, uh, on my first meeting with him, obviously I was the uh, director of comms, so I went to meet all the ministers. Um, and his opening kind of line to me was, I said, I, he said, I don't, I don't think you're going to be very happy with me. He said, I, I'm not really interested in getting my name in the in the media all that much. I'm just interested in doing my job. And I, and I just thought, well, what a what a incredibly well adjusted and very rare politician this makes you. Then I mean, I just I liked him kind of enormously just from from that alone. Um, and then. I think the next time that I sort of came across him in in the in the workspace, if you like, uh, like I bow to no one in my respect for civil servants, but everyone makes mistakes, uh, including civil servants, and they had made quite a bad one, um, and it was a, a mistake that revolved around uh, something to do with business rates, and it meant that they were going to have to claw back some money. Um, and it meant we're going to have to claw back money from lots of different local authorities. So it was kind of politically painful. Uh, it was also uh, rather embarrassing because it was the it was the same mistake they'd made the year before and done a big kind of lessons learned exercise on it and clearly had proceeded to learn no lessons from it because they made exactly the same mistake again. So we're all called in because obviously this is you know is going to require some skillful comms handling as much as everything else. Um, and two things struck me about this. Now, everyone will tell you that, you know, Rishi is like an insanely intelligent human being. Uh, in any room, he's usually either one of, or if not the most intelligent person in the room. Uh, I think the thing that struck me on, on this day, um, and I've, I've got friends who are very close to him who say that this is, you know, par for the course for him. He wears his intelligence really lightly. He doesn't use it to you know, to, to make other people feel small. He takes, you know, he takes soundings from his team. He listens and values and respects the advice of other people. So we're sitting in the room and a bunch of quite shamefaced officials are going through what's happened. Uh, and it's a very complicated matter. And frankly, they lost me at Minister, we have an issue. Um, it's a really complicated thing. So I was struck by two things. One, how quickly he grasped this incredibly complicated issue around business rates. Um, and it was a sort of technical uh, mix-up. And he grasped that in about a minute. Um, and then he came up with a much better working solution for the problem than had been suggested on, on the submission, they call them, sort of advice that goes to ministers from officials. And he came up with a, with a much better working solution. You could see all the officials in the room go, yeah, yeah no, that's, quite a, that's quite a good idea. We'll, we'll, we'll go and work on that. And at no point during this did he you know, uh, lean into the temptation to say, look, so just to be clear, we've made exactly the same mistake that we made the year before or roll his eyes or be short with anyone. He just, you know, focused on the problem at hand, came up with a working solution for this and didn't make anybody in the room, you know, feel bad. Um, that is the measure of the guy. Not only is he fiercely intelligent, but he's also very kind. Mm. Um, and I think these are kind of, the instructional views on it. And I, you know, I know a lot of people that work very closely with Rishi. And, you know, he's a real details man. 
He really likes to work with his team on kicking the tires of a policy, making sure that you know what they're doing is robust and works. He works really hard, really long hours. Um, and you know, if you want to know the measure of a guy, look at the kind of people around him, the loyalty that he engenders in some extremely talented, very well respected, not just MPs, but you know, his aides. And we can talk more about that. But I think in my, you know, my brief time working with him, I can absolutely see what people, you know, who've worked with him for a very long time see, which is a guy who's incredibly intelligent, uh, full of dedication to the job at hand. And this, this, I mean, of all the things that I don't understand about the stuff that's thrown at Rishi, this kind of, oh, he's too rich to understand. I mean, as if, you know, I could dress him in supermarket yeah. clothes and so magically he would understand because he's got, you know, 13-pound trainers on as opposed to, you know, posh sliders, whatever. You know, you've either you've either got the instinct to, to help and to work to make people's lives better, and we can talk again about his background and, and why, but he's got that in spades. You know, he, if you want to look at an aspiration nation and, and, and the instinct that he has for... You know, giving you know people the chance that they can give their children the you know a better standard of life and a and a better shot at a future than you know than the parents have had, then he gets that probably better than than most politicians. Mm. I feel like we might be about to hear even more compliments about Rishi Sunak. So I'm going to maintain my journalistic cynicism and say we will see what he does as prime minister. But Oscar, you worked with him too. You were in there with him. Well, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing, one thing I'd pick up on, which is a remains to be seen mm. point rather than a criticism necessarily, is the details aspect. He is, I mean, so, I, so I've got two links of him. Obviously, there were, you know, sh time shoulder to shoulder at number 10. But also I worked for a backbench MP who was his agent in 2015. Um, he got him elected. Um, uh, he got him selected back in 2015. So in some ways, and he sent me a message today saying, I, I, because of my work, I, I basically, you know, Rishi would not be prime minister without me. And he's, he's kind of right on that point. So there's an interesting story there that I'll go on to very briefly. But the details thing is really interesting. The guy is obsessed with details. Well, I used to go into his constituency office in Parliament when I was working for this backbench MP, and he would be sat there kind of absolutely, you know, tearing over the minutiae of a speech he'd be giving. I don't know necessarily as Prime Minister how that works the whole time. I think sometimes being a real kind of fuddy-duddy details guy is very important, and at other times it slows you down. And actually at times you have to have a gut instinct on things. You have to just absolutely, you are being thrown a hundred million one problems and you have to solve them within 20 minutes. And actually going, oh, can we just, no, two minutes, I just need to really just comb it. Sometimes the political reality doesn't allow for that. So that might be something that he needs to work on a little bit. He needs to get a bit quicker, a little bit fleet of foot, trust his instinct and his gut. Uh, and his aides, which Kirsty identified as definitely some of the most talented people um, that are in the political world. And, you know, why does he attract really talented people? You know, you can work that for yourself. But interestingly, the first ever media call I ever did whilst I was with Boris was with Rishi. We were at a hospital, we were doing a hospital visit. It was with the then health Se secretary, Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak and Boris. And I will never forget this. A, a junior, you know, we did like the pool clip with... Um, I think it's with Sky, Sam Coates Sky. And then you have a, a local media huddle. 
And there were a few dropouts to the local media huddle. And I think we just got one local newspaper. And it was a junior reporter, probably early 20s max, walked in to this press room. And in front of her, she's got Boris Johnson, Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak. And she was shaking with nerves. I mean, she, 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 could, she could really hardly get the question out. And, uh, you know, Boris was great and gave loads of great colour and, and Sajid was a bit more kind of reserved and just... And, and Rishi actually, the, the real... I, a lot of warmth from Rishi. He kind of... You know, because everyone's, you know, you know, running the country. We haven't got time to, you know, do this local paper kind of rubbish. But no, you know, Rishi sat... I remember it was quite touching, actually. You know, really kind of helped her through the questions and, and, and gave her really serious, you know, proper uh, proper answers. And so that stayed with me. And then just after that, because I'd met him a couple of years before when I was working with this backbench MP, he sought me out came over to me and it wasn't, oh, you know, you're working with Boris now, so I'm talking to you. And he was like, how have you been? How's things? And he has a really unique quality to make you feel like you matter, one-to-one. I think he needs to work on how he translates that to the public so we all feel that. But one-on-one, he makes you feel, for those few minutes that he's talking to you, like you really matter. And that's really rare and really powerful. And just the other kind of anecdote on him, when he was being selected, he was a city boy. Goldman Sachs. And famously. he was then having, yeah, and he was having to stand in, you know, North Yorkshire, where there's probably a hole in the wall HSBC bank somewhere and, and nothing else. And part of the selection process, he was meeting the far, like a farmer's union, okay? And these guys have a real sway up there as to who is elected into that seat in Richmond. And he doesn't eat meat. <laughs> yeah. But, no, but, but and, and, and he, I, he knew that could be, this is the level of detail Kirsty was talking about and the optics and the understanding of people. He knew that would potentially be an issue. Um, you know, if he sat there eating his, you know, salad or whatever, while he's got these big burly farmers chopping into their red meat, he knew how that would look. And so he called ahead to the the the, the, the restaurant wherever they were eating this, and he arranged a meat substitute replacement. So to all intensive purposes, it would look like he was, you know, mucking and eating and meat with them. And that, when I when I heard that anecdote, I thought, wow, one, that's a guy who gets people. That's a guy who wants to get to the top. And thirdly, real understanding and level of detail. It's so interesting. Go on, Kirsty. There's a, I mean, Oscar's right. You know, one of the most important things uh, about being a leader um, is the ability to take a decision. Uh, I used to say for right or for wrong, but take a decision. And then Liz Trust came along and I, I, I rode back on that. Take the right <laughs> decision as much as possible. Take the right decision, please. <laughs> Uh, there is another element, though, um, uh, and I slightly want to pick up on Oscar's point about this, uh, about you know the balance between you know detail and taking a decision. One of the other challenges, one of the biggest challenges about being the prime minister, is bandwidth. Um, you know, in any prime ministerial day, you know you can you'll start the morning, you know, with the kind of eight thirty, which is your uh, morning run through with your most senior advisors about you know what's in the media that day, you know what issues are kicking off you know nationally, you know internationally within the party. So there's a 
you know, before you've even started the day proper, there's a great big pile of problems on your uh, on your in-tray for the day. You'll run through your own diary, and your own diary can look like, you know, you've got a security briefing, um, then you've got, you know, a reception with, you know, children from, you know, such and such a school, then you've got to, you know, appear at PMQ, so we need, you know, two hours of prep for that. Then you've got, an, you know, another meeting with, uh, you know, an ambassador. Then you've got, you know, and, 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 and it goes from the day. And you have to switch on a dime both, you know, your understanding, your tone, uh, your ability to rise to meet each and every one of those occasions. So actually, your ability to to hold detail um is is as important. I mean, you know, it was always one of my concerns about Liz Truss becoming the Prime Minister is that, you know, that, I mean, yeah, she could take a decision. Um, uh, but she, the bandwidth thing was always uh, a potential issue for me. I just, you know, having worked with her, I was concerned about her level of bandwidth. I think, uh, you know, Boris has amazing qualities. He's a great kind of ambassadorial role you know he's a great you know chairman role if you like but he's not the chief executive he's not the md the ability to have that detail and that bandwidth for all his qualities as a as a leader i think it's fair to say that wasn't amongst them uh so yes take decisions you know yes be warm and charismatic but also you need to have that bandwidth you need to be able to sort of encompass many, many different things, sometimes at the same time and always, like every day. Really interesting. It'll be just just really quickly, Callum, just pick just that kind of came through when Kirsty was speaking then. It'll be interesting to see, and this is a question more than anything, you know, I know the markets and I think the country are really reassured by the idea of Rishi Sunak at 10 and Jeremy Hunt at number 11 in terms of, taking on the economic challenges we have moving forward. It'll be interesting to see how Rishi can delegate some of that. You know, so much of it will be, see, you know, he'll see as his baby and getting out the headspace of being Chancellor. And Jeremy Hunt is a very experienced, determined, politically savvy guy himself. So there may be, although they're in sync in so many ways in terms of their experience and their competency in the economy, um, so. Jeremy had not particularly experience in it, but just his general competency and how he's done so far. But interesting to see if there are any tensions in terms of how they let go uh, and how, how Rishi can just say, no, that's fine. You know, that dynamic, I think, will be really interesting in the months ahead. But it's, but it's important that they share the same economic kind of philosophy and underpinning, which they do. I mean, it's worth reminding people that actually what started the, the fracture, if you like, between Rishi's relationship and, and Team Boris wasn't over personalities it was over you know Boris's incessant need to spend 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 to be loved 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 uh, and the Treasury's increasing concern that you know in a post-pandemic world that inflation was rising and that interest rate rates would need yeah. to rise to curb inflation and that you know is a, a global phenomenon and that needed to be addressed but you know we had a Prime Minister that wasn't willing to take the tough choices that were needed because of, you know, of cakeism, um, you know, and populism and the need to be loved. So that's where it fractured. And actually, you know, in Rishi's uh, resignation speech, um, letter, you know, it was about, uh, it wasn't about Boris's behaviour. Mm. It was about, you know, their economic differences. And I suspect a lot of that vitriol, if you like, that started to get poured at Rishi, this weird, you know, 
cult of Boris, you know, uh, smear campaign that went on against Rishi, I think that probably started because of the kind of economic split between No them. such thing, Kirsty. Uh, no, fine, okay. Uh, <laughs> he was dealt with in a very he- even way by, uh, by the acolytes. Um, What's the Rishmir campaign, Oscar? I mean, I wouldn't have been exposed. I mean, if there was, it was just so, you know, cloak and dagger. No, 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 I'm not. Even... Can I just clarify? I'm not trying to imply that I'm talking about the A's at number 10. I'm sure, absolutely sure. not. But, I mean, you know, the sort of narrative that was perpetuated by Nadine Dorries and that kind of... Yeah, no, that's of, right. Yeah, you know, Rishi, right. the, I mean, she's called him a traitor. She's yeah. called him a snake. You know, this kind of language... Yeah particularly with the recent yeah. events that we have seen happen to politicians, mm. this kind of language matters. It is dangerous and it is wrong and it is really unhelpful to treat people with honest differences like somehow they've got, you know, different motivations whilst leaving, you know, Liz Truss untouched, who was well-known and widely reported to be having, you know, uh, fizz with Liz drinks for a leadership challenge, uh, you know, the posh five Hartford mm. club, you know, so... So this kind of direction of travel, I thought, was, you know, I didn't understand the narrative then, I didn't think it was particularly fair, but it was ultimately born out of a, you know, of a fracture over over economics, really. It wasn't over, you know, it wasn't over, over politics per se. It was... Her, her aide, uh, Rishi's aide, sorry, you know, so I think Liam Booth-Smith is expected to be the new chief of staff. And Nissi will, if not, um, that's be Nurissa his direct I was going to say, let's, let's do a full name. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Oh, that's that's very <laughs> kind that of was, that, was, that was a bit too bubbly, Oscar. Even, even Sorry, guys. No, no, we are yeah, here to Jesus. burst that what bubble. We're here to burst that bubble, to pour the ice on the what hot What have tapes. I become? So, so they're, they're two people that I, I worked with a little bit or around. Mm. And they are both super smart mm-hmm. and actually really, really great people. And actually, Liam Boo Smith, who I was, it sounds a bit embarrassing to say, but I was, I was quite excited to meet because he's got, you know, a real reputation about him in the, in the spad world. And I remember we were, I met him and we were having a cigarette outside and I kind of introduced myself and, and we got talking and he's a really, really lovely, cool guy. And he said to me, he said, have you ever watched Band of Brothers, the TV series? And I said, yeah, I have, you know, why? And he said, there's a scene where a sergeant says to one of the soldiers, the easiest thing to understand about being a soldier is that you understand you're already dead. And he says, it's exactly the same about being a spad. <laughs> that will always, that will always stick with That's me. That's a cheery tale. a complete <laughs> smile on his face. But it was kind of comforting because yeah. I was very nervous. And I went, no, I'm already dead. It's fine. Everything that happened from here is a bonus. No. So I'll always remember him for that. <laughs> Quite memorable, for sure. Uh, gosh, right, let's... Yeah, let- thanks, thanks for the pep talk, Liam. <laughs> I'll send you into battle, quite happily. Uh, Mum, I want to get know, home. Yeah, get straight, get an emergency. I mean, get evacuated out of there. Henry V Battle of Agincourt, it isn't it, is it? <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I should say that we are about to do a very special... A uh, separate episode of this to stop it and roll it, where we will analyse Rishi Sunak's first speech on Downing Street. We'll break it down. We'll pause it. Kirsty and Oscar or I can jump in and stop it, and then we'll analyse exactly what you've just heard. That's coming in the episode, which will be available even as you're listening to this. So stand by for that. But one thing I want to just bring back at this point, at this, at the conclusion of this episode, is. Your advice, your former advisors, you're still in this world, you're still engaged with these people who are going in the door today as we speak. 
Uh, perhaps they're listening to this. Hello, if you're listening to this, as you even walk up Downing Street to begin serving your country. Good job. Um, your advice to these people who are about to take on these roles on what is effectively, I suppose, for some of them, their first day of school, first day perhaps of a new term, more accurately, if they're returning to government. But Kirsty, what is your advice on this day number one of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak? Uh, I think it's the same uh, advice that I would give any prime minister coming in, which is don't let you know the emergency overtake the urgent. If you like, you've gone in with a very clear mission. The headwinds are extraordinary, uh, and all the chips are stacked against you. So you know, keep your focus on the priorities. Don't let it drift into into other issues that come along unless they can't be uh, ignored and avoided. So like, clean all the barnacles off, things that aren't important, get rid of them. Um, and, you know, and I don't actually need to tell this team this because this is a like long-standing and loyal team around him, but, you know, keep that camaraderie. Um, you know, you will need it going forward. All the friendships that you have forged together in your uh, in your support of Rishi, you will need that going forward because these are dark and difficult days ahead. They are mentally draining. They they test your physical endurance working at Number Ten in times of crisis. They test your mental resilience. Um, uh, but if you're lucky, they don't test your friendship. You know, so don't lose sight of the fact that you know. You are a band of brothers. You are not dead, but you are a band of brothers and sisters. Um, and, you know, I hope that they hold fast on that. Oscar, what's your advice? Yeah, j- j- just to add to that, I mean, there's very little uh, advice that I would dare give someone like Liam Boo Smith, particularly after that interaction we had. <laughs> um, but no, I, I know it's not a particularly fashionable thing to say in a way, or if, if that's the wrong phrase, it sounds a bit wishy-washy and a bit frivolous and and not particularly important when we're discussing such dark difficult economic times but do do try and find moments and time to convey the the one-to-one warmness that everyone who you know spends time with rishi feels to the country do do try and find kind of comms devices to connect with the public and as well as the tough times and because i think as i said earlier the tory party are quite comfortable and feel on safe ground when they're conveying belt tightening and you know money management and responsibility historically anyway before potentially the last few months for sure but do show people the carrot at the end of the tunnel do show people what we're fighting for here and what we are going to have to muck in don't don't forget that you know and part of and rishi completely can take ownership of that 2019 kind of um you know sun sunlit uh, the sunny uplands, whatever it was that Boris used to talk about. You know, he can have ownership over levelling up in that direction. Do keep that in people's minds as well. Um, I, I think that'll be important moving forward because you know those Labour attack lines, you know what they're going to come with in terms of him being out of touch and how can he stand there and tell you that you need to save and scrimp and you don't get your pay rise when he's worth all that money. So they really need to find a comms function and devices for Rishi where people go, no, but I get it. He understands. He does understand. And then all of a sudden, label it really shrill, and it's the politics of envy. And so just find those devices, and I'm sure they will. 
Good advice as ever. Oscar and Kirsty, thank you so much. Thanks for being with us for this episode. If you stand by and subscribe and follow to this podcast, you are going to get an actual extra bonus episode as Prime Minister Rishi Sunak takes office. What we're going to do is we're going to stop it and roll it. That's when we take a bit of political theatre, political drama, a moment, a speech, in this case, and we stop it, we analyse it, and then we roll it again. We put it in its context, we understand exactly what's going on, and we piece it all together for you. We're going to do that with Rishi Sunak's first speech on Downing Street as Prime Minister. That episode will be with you in time for your morning commute, or for those of you who are nocturnal, it'll drop in the middle of the night. It is going to be there in the early hours of Wednesday morning. So you can listen to that and you can share your thoughts. Crucially, get in touch. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. We're going to reopen the correspondence unit where we share your analysis, your predictions, your takes on all that is going on. So email us anytime, hello at whitehallsources.com and stand by because Stop It and Roll It on Rishi Sunak's first speech as Prime Minister is with you very soon. 